0: John starts in his exhortation to not say he starts right after this with Jesus's work as our advocate. Now, you might remember some time ago, if you've been here for, for the last year or so, this last summer, in fact, we were in a sermon series on the Holy Spirit. And in this series, we looked at John 16, where we saw Jesus say that after he ascended to heaven, he was going to send another helper, namely the Lord, the, the Holy Spirit. And we saw that that word helper is, is uh, that word translated as helper is the word paraclete, paraclete. The word paraclete is translated as helper in John 16, but that's also the same exact word translated here as advocate. Sometimes it's translated as helper, sometimes advocate, sometimes comforter. And here, advocate is a wonderful translation because it's highlighting the sort of legal nature of the work of Christ. Some other translations communicate this by describing what someone in this role does. Like one translation says, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. And that's precisely what John is communicating here about Jesus when he calls him our advocate. He pleads our case Before the Father. This is part of the reason that Jesus, we we sang about it earlier, the ascension of Jesus Christ to the throne room of God. He's seated at the right hand of God, pleading on our behalf. This is part of why he ascended to heaven so that he could plead our case. This is part of why he ascended to the throne of God, wherein the manifest Shekinah glory of God dwells. He entered the most holy place as our high priest to intercede on our behalf, so that when we sin, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is standing there before the Father, pleading our case before the Father, being our righteous representative before the Father and saying, look at my righteousness and account it to them. And the Father says, oh yes, I will. Because the Father never refuses Jesus Christ. He never says no to Jesus. He won't ever refuse him. And the reason, of course, that God always grants Christ his request for our forgiveness and declaration of righteousness over us. The reason that God grants this is because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. That's exactly what John goes on to describe when he says he is the propitiation, the propitiation, the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins also of the whole world. Now, I know that propitiation is a big word but it's also a very important word. This is actually one of the main reasons we use this particular translation of the Bible. We preach out of this translation of the Bible. Other translations, like the NIV, it's a perfectly good translation. I'm not saying anything negative about the NIV. It's a great translation, but it doesn't use this word. But this is a very important word. We don't have this word. We actually lose what is at the heart of our gospel. The word propitiation means a wrath-appeasing sacrifice. It means the, the removal of God's wrath by means of an acceptable sacrifice. And so when John says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He's saying that Christ, the righteous one, the acceptable one, the only human being without stain or spot of sin, the only human being who does not deserve the righteous anger and wrath of God, completely absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. Like a sponge, he soaked up every last drop of God's righteous anger toward you because of your sin. The divine justice that your sin demanded has been satisfied. The anger of God toward you as a rebel has been turned away. The death sentence that you deserved because of your sin has been laid upon Christ as your substitute. This is how the God who is light becomes God for you. This is how he becomes the God that is light for you on your behalf, the God who, who who favors you. That is how he becomes your God and you become his child. That is how you become reconciled to him. That is how you become a child of light. This is how you have fellowship with God. And because you have fellowship with God, because you're reconciled to him, and have an unbreakable covenant relationship with him for all of eternity, with the God who is light, you thereby become resolved to live a life wherein you do not sin. But when you do sin, you run to Christ. And you can trust that he pleads your case before the Father, who no longer has any wrath toward you. Instead, he welcomes you as his child. Furthermore, John says that he is not only the propitiation for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. John is saying, my little children, Christ is not only the propitiation for our sins, he has offered himself on behalf of a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Christ is the promised offspring of Abraham, Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the one who has brought the forgiveness of sins and the transformation of the Holy Spirit and he has accomplished it for people groups all over the world many of whom have not heard yet. He has purchased effectually a people from every nation, tribe and tongue. This is John trying to sneak in a little great commission theology into his exhortation to the churches. He doesn't want us to forget about the nations. This is the best news on the planet. We can't keep it to ourselves. And so we we can't forget that Christ has sent his people to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, extending the lordship of Jesus, the good news of the lordship of Jesus all over the earth by teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. Because wherever Christ's commands are obeyed, God's light has been shined there because Christ has been trusted in, which, which brings us to the next way in which we cling to Christ in order to forsake our sins. We obey him as our Lord. And John goes on to say, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Here, John is, is calling for Christians to adhere to what theologians call the third use of the law. The third use of the law. And by law, I don't mean just the Old Testament Mosaic Covenant stipulations. By law, here, I mean any and every command we see in the whole Bible. Okay, and, and in that sense, law is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Jesus gave commands. Paul gave commands. Peter gave commands. John gives commands, and these commands are important. And they have three uses. Every time you come across a moral command in the scriptures, you can look at it in these three ways. The first is the restraining use. It's the first use of the law, the restraining use. The law is like a, a straitjacket in this sense. It restrains evil in the family and in society, even amongst non-believers. Even before your children, if you have young children, even before your children become Christians, the law must be used in this way in their lives. Commands to not murder, to not steal, to not lie, or to whatever else are used to restrain evil in our families and in society, even if it's just because of fear of the consequences for breaking those commandments. The second use is that the, the law reveals sin, thus driving us to Christ. In this sense, the law is like a mirror. It shows us what we are. It shows us our depravity. And in so doing, it drives us to Christ for forgiveness. We know that we cannot be saved in and of ourselves. We sang about this earlier in, in uh, the, the song, um, uh, what's it called? The song, we, No Strength of Man the strength of man. The the law reveals our sin to us and reveals that we cannot be saved in and of ourselves, that we need a savior outside of ourselves to come save us. It drives us to Christ. That's the second use. The third use of the law is that it shows the believer how to live now that they are a Christian. In this sense, the law is like a guide through the wilderness of life. Christ's commands, show us the way that we ought to think and feel and live in this journey through the wilderness of life. These are the three uses of the law, and you can look at any and every moral command in the Bible in light of these three uses. And here, John is appealing to believers, to adhere to this third use. He's saying that Christians, those who are a part of the family of God, are those who obey Christ's commandments. And in fact, John goes as far to say that if someone says they're a Christian, say they're a part of the family, but they don't obey Christ's commandments, that person is a liar. Christians are those who cling to Christ, and those who cling to Christ obey him. If you trust in him, you will obey him. When I tell my kids not to go play out in the street, if they trust me, they won't go play out in the street. If they know that I know better than they do, and they know that I want what's best for them, they will trust me and not go play out in the street. If they don't trust me, they'll go play out in the street. Those who cling to Christ, they trust him, and therefore they obey him. And if you don't obey him, you aren't clinging to Christ, you don't trust him. If you don't cling to Christ and you're not a Christian, Now again, as I mentioned earlier, John is not saying that Christians are without sin. He's not saying that Christians are perfect, and we know this because John also calls those people liars who say they have no sin. Not had, have. Present tense. Instead, John is saying that Christians are those who exhibit a pattern of life wherein they obey Christ and they are growing in obedience to Christ. Christians are those who are less and less growing, less and less divided in their loyalties and affection, and more and more growing in allegiance to Christ as the one true Lord. And for those who exhibit such a pattern of life, John says, By this you may know that you know Christ. He's trying to give people assurance of their salvation. John is saying, This is how we know we're Christians. This is one way we know that we're Christians. This is one way that we know that we belong to Christ. Obedience to him is evidence of genuine conversion and therefore cause for giving one Christian assurance. But then the flip side must then also be true. There's no obedience there. You actually have no reason to think that you're a Christian. You have no reason to think that you've been saved by Christ and you should be alarmed by that. You have no desire to pray. If you continue to ignore and make excuses for or defend your sins. If you behave in ways that are in rebellion against the commands of Jesus, but comfort yourself because you said the sinner's prayer once. If there's another Christian that you abhor, that you hate, that you nurse resentment and bitterness toward without conviction if you're exhibiting patterns of unforgiveness throughout your life, if you are exhibiting a pattern of a lack of generosity with your money, with your time, with your talent, if you're exhibiting patterns of dishonesty and deceit, I want to tell you this morning, you are in danger. You actually have no reason to think that you're a Christian and you need to repent or you will perish. You know, I remember... A few years ago, going to an event here in East Dayton, and it was a, a Christian concert of sorts. Another member of the church and I were there, and uh, we ended up getting into a conversation with a kid there. i we'll call him Teddy. Teddy was, was obviously troubled. He was struggling with, with addiction. He was currently in trouble with the law, in trouble with his parents, just not doing well. So I started asking Teddy about the state of his soul, and and almost immediately, he responded. He said, I've made Jesus my Savior, but I haven't made him my Lord yet. And it seemed like he was saying this more for himself than for me, trying to comfort himself. You know, I, I can only imagine with the way he was living, it probably seemed as if dying soon was a very real possibility. I'd be willing to bet that he had a few brushes with death up to this point in his life and and he wanted to comfort himself. To give himself assurance with these words, he was in essence saying, if I die, I'll go to heaven, but if I continue to live, I'm not ready to forsake my sins. I've made Jesus my savior, but I haven't made him my Lord yet. This, of course, is, I don't even blame Teddy for this. This is something he heard from a Christian or a pastor somewhere. You can make Jesus your Savior, but you don't have to make him your Lord. You can make him your Savior. You can have his salvation without making him your Lord. You can cling to him as your advocate without clinging to him as your Lord. You can have forgiveness of sins without forsaking your sins. You can have salvation without repentance, basically. My friends, that is a damnable heresy that sends people straight to hell because Jesus cannot be divided. He is our advocate and he is Lord. And if you want the Christ, you must receive the whole Christ. Imagine doing that in marriage saying, I like these parts of you, potential spouse, but not these other parts. I'll I'll take these parts without the other ones. You don't get to pick and choose the parts that you like and then leave the parts that require hard things from you. Trust him as your advocate. Obey him as your Lord because he is advocate and he is Lord. Lastly, follow him as your example. A particular passage this morning ends with John writing this. He says, by this we may know that we are in him, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Those who walk in the light cling to Jesus, and that involves following him as an example, following his example. This is interesting because, you know, this is not a subject celebrated much in our circles of Christianity. We tend to emphasize the fact that Jesus is our propitiation, that he's our atonement, that he's our substitute, and rightfully so. That's what the New Testament, that's what the entire Bible emphasizes. But then the Bible also does at times talk about Jesus as our example. Several times in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.21, the apostle Peter says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, substitute, propitiation, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Or the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He goes on to talk about Christ's work of humility and, and humiliation, wherein he becomes a human being. He steps into humanity and then dies on our behalf in the most humiliating way possible. These are ways in which we're to imitate Christ. But then I think John has a specific teaching from Jesus here in mind. Seeing as how the following paragraph in 1 John here speaks about this new commandment that Jesus has given us to love one another, I think he has the very words of Jesus in mind here from John 13, 34. It's going to be up on the screen, but this is what it says. a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another, listen, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so really in saying, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which you walk. John is saying whoever abides in him ought to love their brother and sister in Christ the way he loved that brother or sister in Christ. He's he's beckoning God's people to love God's people like Christ did and does. And that's that's what motivated him to suffer and die as our propitiation. And those who trust in Christ as their advocate and propitiation are also those whose hearts and lives are so warmed and affected that they want to be like him. And more, they're growing to be like him. You know, growing up, I wanted to be exactly like my older brother. I think anyone who had older siblings uh, can probably remember and relate. Growing up, you want to be just like your older siblings, typically. You think they're so cool. You want to dress like them. You want to listen to the same music as them. You want to make the same jokes that they make. I was no different. I wanted to be exactly like my older brother in pretty much every way that I could I never got to be as tall as him, but back in ancient times, my very first day of high school, I remember being very overwhelmed and very nervous. The school was huge and there were lots of people. And I remember walking in and heading to the cafeteria before classes started to, to sit with some friends for a few moments. And, uh, When I arrived at the cafeteria, I was standing in a circle with some friends. And within just a few moments, a a, a girl a couple grades above me says to me, "Uh, you're Tyler Green's brother, aren't you? And I said, yeah, how did you know? And she said something to the effect of the the way you carry yourself and the way that you walk. In other words, your, your mannerisms... You, you, you bear this kind of family resemblance. And of course, I, I loved hearing this. I consciously wanted to be like him, but apparently even in ways that were subconscious, I was just like him. Just simply by being in the same family, just simply by having the same genes, just by simply growing up together, I resembled him. And my friends, similarly as, as Christians, we mimic our elder brother, Jesus Christ simply by abiding in him, simply by being with him, simply by being united with him in an unbreakable covenantal union. And not only that, it's not just something like subconscious that we're passive and it happens to us. We want to be like him. We work hard to be like him. We fight that within us that is opposed to him in our hearts and, and lives because we've been so affected by what he's done for us. We desire with our whole hearts to be like him. Have you experienced this? Are you experiencing this? This desire, this growth, this this progressive change in your life to be more like Christ. If you truly know him, if you truly have received him and his work on your behalf, if you've truly seen how lovely, how excellent, how righteous he is, if if you've truly seen how kind, how gentle, how meek, how generous he is, how could you want to be like anyone else? want to be like Jesus. And it's for that reason, John says that this is a very powerful and important piece of evidence that you belong to Christ and that he belongs to you. That's what he means when he says, by this we may know that we are in him. By this, our, our following his example, we may know that we are in him. In other words, our being faithful in following his example gives us assurance. Now to be clear, our obedience to Jesus Christ as Lord and our following his example set forth for us in no way contributes to our salvation, in no way contributes to our justification and forgiveness before God. Our obedience doesn't earn us a thing when it comes to forgiveness. Our obedience doesn't earn us a thing when it comes to being reconciled to God. It doesn't earn us a thing when it comes to any aspect of our salvation. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He has fully satisfied the justice of God and purchased your full salvation. And to say anything else would be to say that Christ is insufficient. Our obedience doesn't add anything to him. It can't add anything to him. And therefore, it can't add anything to your salvation because he is your salvation. However, our personal obedience to Jesus Christ as Lord and our following his example in life can and does give us assurance that his salvation is ours. And really, that's that's John's intention here When he's talking about obeying Jesus as Lord and following him as our example. A few moments ago, we we talked about the opposite of that, that if we don't want to obey him, don't want to follow his example, then we have no assurance of our salvation. We should be alarmed, and that's true. What John is wanting to do here is he's actually wanting to comfort and assure true Christians. By saying to them, you're obedient and, gross, and growth in and Christ's likeness is evidence that you're truly Christ's. A life of obedience motivated by gratitude is evidence that you've received God's full and free forgiveness. A life of walking in the light is evidence that you've been reconciled to and, and have fellowship with the God who is light. You See, John is assuming the best about his hearers. And I, I want to do the same this morning. I want to assume the best about you. Friends, if, if, if you're growing in generosity with your time, your money, your talent, if you genuinely love and sacrificially serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're growing in tenderness and forgiveness toward those who have wronged you and sinned against you, if you're fighting to have a substantive and rich prayer life, even though it's really hard, if you're convicted when you disobey Christ's commands and truly desire to grow in obeying Christ's commands, and you are growing, if you genuinely care for the poor, for the destitute, and seek to meet the needs of those who are in need, let that be cause for great assurance to you this morning. An effort to keep with John's intentions here, I want to tell you, if you're progressively growing in likeness, however slow it might be, however hard and difficult it is, you can rest assured that that likeness is the fruit of being united to him through faith. That is evidence that you have fellowship with God. That is evidence that you are a child of light. But now, some of you who are a bit more tender here this morning, you might be worrying This is always a challenge with texts like these. You you know, you you don't want to give false assurance to goats, but you also don't want the sheep to be needlessly alarmed. In fact, whenever you preach a sermon like this, you, you can count on the goats typically not being affected at all, while some of the sheep will indeed worry. And no doubt every sheep, every true Christian has at times been frustrated by their own progress in Christ likeness and obedience. It's true of every Christian without fail. And that might be you this morning. Instead of seeing this as reason for assurance, you might you might become frustrated, even alarmed this morning. And if that describes you, let me offer you just a few words. In closing, first, I would tell you, be be careful how you're measuring progress. Listen, real change, real growth, real progress in the Christian life is slow. It's a marathon, not a sprint. In terms of board games, it's monopoly. Got to play the long game. And most of the time when you're trying to measure your progress, you know, we're thinking in terms of like the last 24 hours, the last 7 days, the last month. And I'm telling you that will inevitably discourage you. One Christian thinker once said, isn't it funny how day by day nothing changes, but when you look back everything is different. And that's what progress in the Christian life is like. It's it's a process, not an event. And it's a slow process, but it is a sure process. Sin is progressively losing its power and grip over your life. So be careful how you're measuring your progress. Second, be careful to define progress and growth biblically. Uh, David Pallison has got an open letter to those frustrated by their progress in sanctification. It's a helpful letter. I encourage you to read it. And he says. You know, often when we hear the words sanctification, growth, transformation, we have an idealized image of what that might look like. Though each of us may picture slightly different things, I doubt for most of us that the image includes three quarters of the book of Psalms, which portray life where faith and hope happen in the midst of honest struggles. He's exactly right. The, the psalms portray this vividly. The psalmists, you know, the psalmists portray progressive growth in likeness as being a hard road, a road of struggle, a road of difficulty, a road wherein you will inevitably meet overwhelming and discouraging circumstances, and you will be overwhelmed and discouraged, a road wherein you will at times have doubts and tears and cuts and bruises, and sometimes you'll be so angry or so sad or so frustrated that you don't even know what to do. But the other thing portrayed in the Psalms is that there's trust and dependence upon the Lord in the midst of these sorts of difficulties. In other words, don't think that progress in the Christian life means living a nice, respectable, American dream kind of life. And Jesus himself is is what we want our Christian lives to be like, and he experienced estrangement from his family and friends. He experienced persecution from the religious elite. He sweat blood and weeped and suffered, and he's the one who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Progress in the Christian life might look much like that. Be careful to define progress and growth biblically. And third, be careful not to discount ways in which God is actually working in your life. And David Pallison's letter, again, is, is helpful. He says, there are particular kinds of growth and strength that may be happening in our lives that we don't even see. And in fact, I would go even further and say that there are indeed ways in which God is working in your life that you don't see. Similar to what's going on in your physical body without your even being aware of it. I mean, your, your, your heart and your liver and your kidneys are functioning, not because you're consciously making them work, but because they're happening because God is upholding you. Similarly, in the Christian life, there are things going on that you're not aware of. There are things going on in you right now, Christian, that you're not aware of. Perhaps perhaps what would be helpful for you is to spend some time in self-examination and try to determine where God is at work in you. Maybe instead of working in an area of your life that, that you think should be addressed first, maybe he's doing something more pertinent, like making you more merciful, making you more concerned about the needs of others, making you less self-righteous and more dependent upon him. Don't discount what he's doing in you. And in all reality, the, the, the fact that you are concerned about your progress and in growth in the, in the Christian life, if you indeed are, that is evidence of God's work in your life. You know, Jesus himself said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. You know, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you're concerned about growing in Christ's likeness and growing in obedience to him and growing in righteousness, that is evidence of Christ's work in your life. And he promises you, I'm going to satisfy you. Ultimately, friends, whatever God is doing in your life, recognize that Christ is going to be at the center of it all. Recognize that Christ is going to be at the center of it all, not you. It's one of the reasons it might be unpleasant. Because it's not about you, it's about him. You are not the light. God is the light and he shines his light on us through Jesus Christ. Therefore, don't don't cling to your righteousness. Don't cling to your obedience. Don't cling to your Christ-likeness. Cling to Christ. And if you cling to him, you will progressively grow in trusting him. And thereby you will also grow progressively in obeying him and becoming more and more like him. And by this, you may know that you are in him. Let's pray. Father, would you assure our hearts this morning? We prepare to come to the table. Would you give us assurance? Would you assure our hearts before you? Would you help us to know that we are in him? We pray that that also, during this gathering that you would be moving in us, you would be changing our trajectories there's anyone running away from Christ, turn them around, that they may run to him instead. If we're doubting, help us to trust. If we're disobeying, help us to obey. If we're not following, help us to follow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.